It is good to see you all. Uh, you are loved and missed, and it is good to be back here. So thank you for, for inviting me. Um, what comes to your mind when you think about God? Do you think about God's attributes? Do you think about his characteristics? Do you think about how God is holy or altogether good or God's justice? Do you think about what God has done? Do you think about how he created all things? Do you think about how he called Abraham out of a land to bear his name? Do you think about how he gave the law or how he sent his prophets to warn and to rebuke his people? Do you think about how he sent his son and how he gives us his spirit? Are those the things that you think about when you think about the Lord or do you think about something else? Or if we're being honest, do we not think about the Lord as often as we ought? If we're being true to ourselves, do we say that, well, there are maybe even days that go by without me thinking about the Lord or what the Lord has done? Well, I thought that Psalm 111 would be an appropriate text for us to, to ponder today, for us to meditate on today, because this text is about the goodness of God. This text is about God's awesome name. And in a time like this, what better thing could we think about than who God is and what God has done? I can't think of anything better to think about this morning other than that. Psalm 111 is an acrostic poem. An acrostic is where it takes the letters of the alphabet and each line of the psalm begins with the next letter of the alphabet. Malachi is actually the one who named the sermon. I just told him what text I was doing. And I, I think it's something like praising the Lord from A to Z is what he said, which, is, which fits, right? Of course, the Hebrew alphabet is not A to Z. And you lose this in translation a little bit. But it would be like if we had the first line, it would start with A. And the first word of the first line starts with A. So we would say something like, Awesome is the Lord in all that he does. And then the second line would start with B, and the third line would start with C, and so on and so forth, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. So that's what it does. The, this kind of acrostic structure kind of gives an idea of kind of completeness whenever, whenever it appears. There are several psalms that are acrostic in nature. The book of Lamentations is acrostic in nature, so you can see that with uh, with, with the different chapters of Lamentations. The one that's probably the most popular, the one that you would see most easily in your English Bible would be Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 has a section that'll say Aleph. And then all of the lines in that section begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second section will say Bet. And the, all of the lines of that section will begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's not only an acrostic though, it's also a hymn. And there, there's actually kind of a pattern and, and a form to hymns, but there's also kind of something that hymns often do. Hymns are songs that praise the Lord for who he is and what he does, and they often focus on this idea of redemption. So they praise the Lord for who he is and for, for what he does, and they often focus on redemption, which is going to be the theme of this psalm as well, the big, the big point of this psalm. So what I want to do is I just want to read the psalm again, and then we will go through each of the parts of it. Praise the Lord. That's a command. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright and the congregation, 
Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has caused his covenant. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. The structure of most hymns, and this hymn follows that structure, will be a call to worship at the beginning of it. So you saw that call to worship at the beginning. We'll look at it again here in a moment. That's verse 1. Then there will be kind of this motive or reason for praise. That's going to be verses 2 through 9. I'm going to split that into two parts. But it's 2 through 9. That's the second part of the psalm. And then the last part will be kind of a recapitulation or another call to worship or a call to response at the end. And this is the the structure that almost all hymns in the Psalms follow, and it's what this hymn, what this psalm follows. So the big idea of this this hymn is the psalmist gives thanks and praise to the Lord for what he has done in redeeming the people of Israel. God's people should respond by living in the fear of him or in the fear of the Lord. That's the big idea that the psalmist gives. Right, So the psalmist gives thanks to the Lord for what he's done in redeeming Israel. God's people are to respond by fearing him and praising him, right? Fearing him and praising him. Well, the application of that big idea, as we move from the big idea that the psalm has to our context today is going to be this. We will praise God because he has saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, a greater redemption than what Israel had. And we should respond by living lives that are focused on knowing him, which is the fear of the Lord. All right, so let's look at that call to worship again. So the first part of this text is a call to worship, and this call to worship calls us to praise the Lord with all of our hearts, with our whole hearts. So it starts off with that command, hallelujah, is what it says which is translated as praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All y'alls, praise the Lord. I want to give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So here we see the psalmist, right, talking, first person. I want to, he's compelled to give thanks to the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. The psalmist calls the reader, and the congregation to praise the Lord, an imperative there. He does this by giving thanks or making a pronouncement or an announcement in the the context of the congregation. He mentions the company of the upright, the congregation, and this is a common theme within the Psalms, and you'll see that these Psalms, they were read by Israel, right? They were sung by Israel, especially during kind of holy days. And the author is is bringing this idea out. 
So as we think about this call to worship, we need to be people who give praise and thanks to the Lord. That seems like a pretty straightforward application. I don't like to find things that aren't in the text. Give thanks and praise to the Lord. We need to be a people who are thankful to God and who express that thankfulness. How easy is it in our life to actually be thankful, but to never overflow with thankfulness and express that audibly? Just think about how you treat your siblings, right? your friends, your coworkers, right? your, your spouse, your children. Is there ever a time when you are deeply and profoundly thankful for what they've done and you've, you've not expressed that thankfulness? I'm guessing that that's probably the case. And if you're doing that in your, in your relationships, you're probably doing that much more significantly with your relationship with the Lord, aren't you? You take that for granted that maybe I just need to actually express in the congregation of the upright, God, I am thankful for you and for what you have done. You are awesome. We need to do that. We need to be people who practice such things. Survey your life. You may be going through some of the most difficult times in your life. Just imagine all of the bad things that have happened over the last six months. I know that there are people in here who are hurting and who are maybe at a low point But God's goodness is still evident. God's grace and his graciousness is still ever present. If we focus on those awful things, we can miss some of the most spectacular things that God is doing. What is he doing? Focus on him. It's often easier for me to see the things that I want, right? It's often easier for me, the the things that I want, the things that I desire, the, the, the way that I want things to be that I do not have, right? So it's easier for me to see, easier for me to see those things that I want that I do not have than to be thankful for the things that God has given me in his goodwill. I'm imagining that some of you are as broken and fallen as me, so maybe that's true of you as well. And this call is not just for us personally, introspectively, in our, in our homes and in, 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 that, in that quiet place to respond to God in this way. This is a congregational call. This is a call for us to do this in a most public of fashion, in front of the, the company of the upright. And I wonder why that is. I'm guessing it's because when we are thankful and praise the Lord in the company of others, it spurs them on to thankfulness and to praise of the Lord as well, doesn't it? When you come across somebody who is truly thankful to God and who exudes that with all that they are, doesn't that affect and change your outlook? Man, I pray, I pray that we can be people who do that for each other, for the glory of God. Of God. So that's our call to worship today. And then the psalmist goes on and he talks about God's works and he talks about how God's works show who he is in verses two and three. So all of two through nine are really one unit, 
that's a lot of text, right? So I want to break it up in two to three, and then four through nine. So God's works show who he is. And so the psalmist just, he goes from calling the people to to praise and saying, I will praise, and I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. That's our position of praise, isn't it? With my whole heart, with all that I am. And he moves on to say, great are the works of the Lord. So he just starts praising God. Studied by all who delight in him. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. So after the call to worship, the psalmist describes why he praises the Lord. God is to be praised because of his great works, because of what he's done. His works are full of splendor and majesty. So think about what the psalmist is is thinking about here. He's thinking about things that have been revealed through scripture, isn't he? He's thinking about probably creation and he's probably more, more thinking about the Exodus event, the plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh, and God working with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. We'll see that a little bit more in the next section. But they are full of splendor. And God's works show his righteous character, don't they? Full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. So the psalmist steps back and he looks at God's works, and he says, it declares his nature and his character. So think about Paul in Psalm 1, right? Even the creation shows God's power and his existence. When we look back and we see what God has done and what God is even doing now, we look at it and we say, it declares his righteous character. God does what is good. God does what is right. And that should That alone should spur us to praise. So as we think about this and we think about what this psalm is saying, look at this. It says that those who delight in the Lord study his great works, studied by all who delight in him. That word studied is most frequently translated like to seek, right? They seek. Those who delight in the Lord, they seek him. They seek his works. They seek him even. We are to seek the Lord by studying his works. That is what his people do. We are to be people who study the Lord, who he is and what he does. So do you do that? Do you seek the Lord? Do you study the Lord? What are you doing to study him? Do you read God's word? Do you study theology? Church history? Are you constantly in prayer? If someone had a picture or a video of of the last week of their life, they would be able to tell what you study. They would know what it is that your focus is, what it is, where it is that your heart is. What would it say about you? Are you studying the Lord? Are you seeking his awesome name? And not only is this study some academic, sterile pursuit where we're locked in, you know, a room 
you know, just pouring over books. That's, that's not what this study is. That's not what the seeking of the Lord is. It doesn't look like that at all because it says that it's studied by all who delight in him. So I guess maybe the first question we should ask is, do we delight in the works of the Lord? Do we delight in the Lord? Because if you don't delight in the Lord, it's going to be very hard to study his works. Have you ever tried to study something that you don't like? Right? I have never really liked math. I've never enjoyed it, I'm sure, right? There are some of you, we've got a lot of engineers in this room, I know, right? So there are a lot of people who are broken and fallen and love math. So, but I've never really enjoyed, I've I've not delighted in it. And so studying it was hard, right? So if you find the Lord hard to think about and hard to study, is it because you do not delight in him? As you ought. Delight in the Lord, sisters. Delight in the Lord, brothers. It will be much easier to pursue him. The study of the Lord is done by those who delight in the works of the Lord, and certainly they delight in the Lord as well. And again, consider, this is not just to be thought of individually, you going home and doing this by yourself. This is a corporate call within this psalm, that we are to delight in the Lord, not only individually, but also corporately. Have you ever known someone who delighted in something and their delight in it spilled over into your delight for it, right? Right? So maybe it's a a restaurant or a movie or a book or something along those lines. Those things have a tendency to escalate, right? I mean, Star Wars became a phenomenon not because it was always, they were always great movies because they weren't. Like, let's just be honest, right? But it's because there's a culture and people are excited about it and people love it and they like the storyline, right? So it kind of bubbles up and it overflows, This book that declares the God that we worship is so much better than that storyline. How much more should we be a culture of people in the church that delights in the Lord like someone else may delight in a movie franchise? So individually, yes, but this should should bubble over into a corporate praise into a corporate delight. So in verses four through nine, we see another part of God's work, and this this work is focused on his redemption of his people, and he's brought them into relationship. His redemption of his people that he's brought into relationship. It says this, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. I love that. He just says he's caused his works to be remembered, and then he's just like, man, God is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. So you see in these verses, there'll be kind of a, there'll be a praise and then there'll be kind of a ground for that praise. Ah, oh, that's what's going on. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be, formed with faith, to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. 
He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This section uses a lot of language from the Exodus. So if you look at Exodus and Numbers and the beginning of the book of Joshua, most of the events that he's praising the Lord for are located kind of in those books. So he's his wondrous works, right? The, the things, his, his signs and wonders that he did in Egypt. Remembers his covenant, right, that he gave through Moses in Exodus 24. The redemption that he brought about as he redeemed them from the hand of bondage and slavery. And he's providing food, certainly, the, the wilderness manna that fell, right? And then it talks about how he gave them, them the inheritance of the nations, right? The conquest in the book of Joshua. God causes his works, all of those things, to be remembered. And man, this is gracious of him, isn't it? Right? When you think about who God is and what God does, he's done such great things that they're, they, they're caused to remember, he provides for those who fear for him. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. That's kind of the main applicational point at the end. So I'll, I'll hold off on going any further there. But he provides for those who fear for him, the food in the, in the wilderness. He remembers and is faithful to his covenant. So he's faithful to his covenant. That is even more startling if you know the history of Israel where they were completely unfaithful to their end of the covenant. But he, he remembers his covenant. Read Exodus, the, the, the last couple of verses in Exodus 2. He remembers his covenant. His works are faithful and just, and his precepts, his command, his word is trustworthy. The things that God does, they are faithful. The things that God does, they are just. And, his, and what he commands his people are likewise God expects his people to live by his word. He expects his people to live by his commands. He redeemed his people in order to do this. And this is one of the great things about who God is. God redeems his people and then he says, now live like my people. He brought them into covenant relationship with each other and he showed them how to live as his people. And all of this resounds in a how awesome and how holy is God. We, we just stand back and we even survey just a few things that he's done. I mean, these are just snippets, right, of what he has done and who he is. And we're in awe. So as we think about this, the people of Israel experienced God's awesome work through the redemption in the Exodus. And that was awesome, right? I've seen the Prince of Egypt when that wall of water goes up. That's pretty spectacular. And I'm sure that that is not, it doesn't even hold a candle to what it actually looked like, right? God is awesome in his work. And he did an awesome work in redeeming Israel out of bondage and slavery to, to uh, Israel out of bondage and slavery to Egypt. He made covenant with them. He gave them his good commands to be kept. But when we think about that redemption and that covenant, it pales in comparison to what God has given us. God has shown us greater works. He did not send Moses to us, but he sent his son Jesus to us. Who not only saved us from our terrible circumstances, but saved us from our sin and from God's just judgment. He redeemed us to himself. And he gives us a greater covenant than the Israelites experienced at Mount Sinai. 
So if the psalmist had reason to praise the Lord, you have 10,000 more because of what he has done for us in his son. He has placed his spirit within us and he has caused us to walk in his ways. Read Ezekiel 36, the beautiful text. And as Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, he's brought us from death to life. He's made us who were not a people and who were a people without hope into a household, into his family. And he has redeemed us to live as his people and we are created to do good works for the praise and the glory of his awesome name. So we've seen the the content of the praise in verses two through nine And then we see our response in verse 10. Our response is to praise God by fearing him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. The psalmist reminds those singing, right, those reading of of a well-known biblical posture, and that is the fear of the Lord. This looks a lot like Proverbs 1-7, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? It's the beginning, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fearing of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting point. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is paralleled with the idea that practicing the fear of the Lord gives one good understanding, discretion, right? If you fear the Lord... You know what's what. It's kind of the idea there. If you don't fear the Lord, not so much. And the psalm ends with a declaration that praises, that God's praises endure forever. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, this is a very large topic. I obviously won't be able to cover it all today. Malachi told me I only had an hour and a half, so I'm joking. He told me actually to keep it short, and I'm not very good at that. So, um, so what is the fear of the Lord? I'm just going to look at a few texts. So write these down. Look at them in more detail later, but I'm just going to very quickly talk about what the fear of the Lord is. So in the psalm, Psalm 19.9 says that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And then it puts that idea in parallel with the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord, right, clean. The the, the commands of the Lord are righteous and true. Similar concepts to what we've seen here. Psalm 22, 23 commands that all those who fear the Lord need to praise him and glorify him and be in awe of him. And it particularly is talking to the offspring of Israel. So those who fear the Lord worship him. Right, which is what this psalm is commanding us to do. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let everyone in the whole world fear the Lord. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 36, 1 says, The fear of God before their says that the foolish and the wicked have no fear of God before their eyes. So the righteous fear the Lord, the wicked don't. The righteous person teaches the fear of the Lord to their children, according to Psalm 34, 11. Proverbs, of course, talks about how the fear of the Lord is knowledge, how the fear of the Lord is wisdom, that those who, who hate knowledge don't fear God, right? Those who delight in him study him, right? 
You can read about that in Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 1.29, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is actually in Proverbs 2.5 said to be the knowledge of God. To know God is to fear. To fear God is to know him. If you know God, if you are in relationship with God, you do fear him. The church lost a saint this week in J.I. Packer who wrote a wonderful book maybe one of the most influential books over the last hundred years called Knowing God. I would highly encourage you to read it. That book will teach you the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Proverbs 8, 13 and 16, 6. So the next time you find yourself saying things that you shouldn't, ask yourself, am I fearing the Lord? You're not if you are saying things that you shouldn't. The next time you're grumbling and complaining in your heart, Ask yourself, am I feeling, fearing the Lord? If you're grumbling and complaining in, in your heart, you're not fearing the Lord, right? Because fearing the Lord is going to take a posture of awe towards God. And it's going to take a posture of praise towards God. The fear of the Lord brings life and confidence in the Lord, right? The fear, and you can read about that in Proverbs 10, 27, 14, 26, 14, 27, 19, 23. The fear of the Lord also manifests itself in humility. Read about that in Proverbs 15:33 and 22:4. So what does it look like to live or to practice the fear of the Lord as the psalmist says here? Well, it actually looks like living out Psalm 112. So Psalm 111 and 112 are actually meant to be read together. They're both acrostic poems. Psalm 111 ends with this idea of the fear of the Lord, and Psalm 112 begins with the idea of the fear of the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So what I want you to do is I want you to, this week, meditate and reflect on Psalm 112. I'm not going to preach Psalm 112 as well, don't worry. Meditate and reflect on Psalm 112. And ask yourself, do you delight in God's commands? This will be a a barometer for whether or not you fear the Lord. Are you gracious and merciful and righteous in your words and deeds and thoughts? Are you afraid of bad news? Because the person who fears the Lord and trusts in the Lord, they're not afraid of bad news coming because they trust in him. And do you trust in the Lord? And when you, like me, will fail at every single one of these this week at some point, know that we have grace and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. That this is not on your own exertion and flesh to accomplish this, but that this has been accomplished through his son. Can you rest in that? Can you trust in that? The Bible paints a picture that no matter what comes, the righteous person will not be moved because they fear God, because they praise God, because they know God, because they've studied God. So I implore you, know the Lord. And when you know the Lord, you will delight in the Lord. And when you delight in the Lord, you will study the Lord. Let's pray.